Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, as you've heard several times, it's obviously Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day, because if I got up here and didn't say happy Mother's Day, I'd probably get an email for that. <laughs> so happy Mother's Day to all, the, to all the awesome moms and grandmas out there, and to all the women, too, who have played the role of spiritual mother, spiritual aunt, spiritual grandmother, nurturing and caring for and loving those underneath your protection and care. And I hope that many of you will get gifts or have received gifts. Maybe you already got breakfast in bed. Uh, Laura and I were talking. Uh, the girls made her breakfast this morning. I was gone. I just helped them with the coffee, so I was really curious what it was, and it was actually pretty good. It was some, some fruit and eggs, better than I think it was two years ago. My Father's Day breakfast had something random and toothpaste, and I <laughs> think I may have even taken a bite of it, too. But So hopefully you'll get a special meal, a nice... Some nice flowers, a nice gift basket. I read an article this week called The Worst Mother's Day Gifts Ever. And all different uh, presents moms wanted to give back. And so guys, if you're looking for a last-minute idea, you still haven't bought anything for your wife, um, take, uh, just, just listen to this because you'll get an idea of what not to buy. So here are some of the things that were on those worst Mother's Day gifts. Here's what 39-year-old Rebecca from Michigan said. She said, usually a day at the spa never fails. My husband got me a day-long spa package a few years ago, and I thought it was fantastic. I went in the morning and was excited for a massage, some skin therapy, the works. Turned out he just wanted me out of the house so he could have his friends over to watch college football. I got home a little earlier than expected, and the house was a mess. The kids were crying, and he was just yelling at the TV with his friends. 34-year-old Kirsten from Ohio said, The worst Mother's Day gift I ever received was probably spice jars shaped like gnomes. Or elves. I don't know what they were. Creepy little figures that he thought were from Lord of the Rings. I'm a big fan, and I guess he assumed that all small magical beings come from Middle Earth. I couldn't be mad because it showed genuine thought, but I did end up just tossing them after he'd forgotten about them. Which is a good tactic, by the way, because we forget easily. I'm pretty sure there were two Mother's Days in a row where I got Laura the same card and didn't realize it. Here's what 37-year-old Anna from Wisconsin said. She said, my husband got me a really beautiful lamp one year. It had a vintage look to it, was colorful, which I love, and it seemed like a really thoughtful gift. Yeah, he garbage picked it. 
I'm not snobby when it comes to spending money on gifts, but I kind of draw the line of garbage. It seemed like he just drove by a pile in someone's driveway and thought, this will do. It didn't even work. He didn't bother to test it before he gave it to me, which showed me that he was too busy or too dumb to care. And then Anne-Marie from Connecticut said this, the worst Mother's Day gift I ever received was a gift card to my husband's favorite restaurant, which is a steakhouse. I'm a vegetarian. His response was, they have salads. I was equal parts ticked and impressed that he had the guts to even try that. I told him to keep it and get me something more thoughtful. Luckily, the gift from my kids that year was awesome, and my husband definitely rode their momentum that year. So ladies, hopefully you will receive some better gifts, and some of those women did. And see, as much as we might be accustomed to giving gifts to moms or to our, our spouses on Mother's Day, but we're going to see in our next passage this morning, um, in the, the second half of Galatians chapter 4, is that we have been given a gift from one of our two uh, spiritual moms. And depending on who our mother is depends on whether this is a good gift to be treasured or a garbage gift to be trashed. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, which will be our text for this service. And Paul wraps up the doctrinal section of his letter by essentially asking the question of the Galatians, who's your mommy? Who's your mommy? See, Galatians is six chapters. The first two chapters are very personal. And then in chapters three and four, Paul kind of launches into the doctrinal section, um, all of the, the, the uh, Christian doctrine and truth. And then in the next two chapters, five and six, he'll launch into the practical. The, okay, so now what does this mean for your life and how, you're, how you ought to live? So he's just coming up to the very end of that doctrinal section. Okay, and remember that all throughout Galatians, Paul has been emphasizing time and time again that people are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. And he's been harping on this so much because of the Judaizers in, in Galatia who were trying to distort the, the gospel message of God's grace. That is the pure message of the gospel. And they were trying to distort that. So in this next section, Paul wraps up his argument for salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone by using an illustration of two Old Testament women, Sarah and Hagar. See, Paul already argued that the true children of Abraham are those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Now, Paul brings further clarity to that argument by following the lineage of Abraham's two sons uh, through their uh, two mothers. And the reason he does this is because he's trying here to enforce in the hearts and minds of the Galatians the reality of their identity. He needs them to remember who they are. He wants them to, to remain in the freedom of God's grace by remembering who they are in Christ. Because apparently some of the Christians, they were falling back into legalism. They were living as if they were once again slaves. They were completely forgetting their identity in Christ. They were completely forgetting the freedom that was there. So what Paul does in this section is he reaches back into Old Testament history to the days of Abraham to remind the believers in Galatia who they are in Christ. And he does this by contrasting Abraham's two wives Hagar and Sarah, and the offspring each of them produced, Ishmael and Isaac. So, by surveying the history of all of these Old Testament characters and what they represent, 
The exhortation for us is going to be the same, for us to remember who we are. The Galatians needed a reminder of who they truly are, and we always need a reminder of who we are, probably more than we're willing to admit. So what you want to get from this passage is to simply remember who you are, and that's the thread that you'll see throughout this whole passage. Now, who are you? Well, that's going to depend on how you answer the question, who's your mommy? Okay, so let's jump into Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Galatians 4, verse 21. Paul starts out this way. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do not listen to the law. Now, Paul's calling out the Galatians here. Remember that uh, some of the Galatians were under the influence of these Judaizers. These Judaizers were trying to subject these uh, free Christians to, uh, to legalism, to, to aspects of the Old Testament law. But most of these Galatians were from Gentile backgrounds. The region um, of Galatia, the, the different churches that were in that region, those were all, those were all Gentiles, so they were non-Jews. So it's not like they really understood the Old Testament. It's not like they really had a deep understanding of the law anyway. So what Paul's saying here is, guys, it's like you really, really want to submit to this law, but do you even know what the law says? Can you even make sense of it? Do you understand it? And then what he does is he turns to the historical account of Abraham to begin illustrating just how much greater grace is than the law. So verse 22, he says this, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So we're introduced in this passage right away to five people. Five people Paul is going to use in his illustration. Abraham, his first two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and uh, his two wives with those two sons, Hagar and Sarah. Now, it wasn't long ago that we studied through Abraham's story. Uh, So that's going to help kind of understand where he goes with this. But uh, a quick review. If you remember, 75-year-old Abraham was living in uh, uh, an area of the the Fertile Crescent uh, called Ur of the Chaldees. And um, he was worshiping false gods and and God, for no other reason than his divine grace, um, calls Abraham um, and, and introduces himself to Abraham as the one true God and basically says... I got a mission for you. Are you going to follow? And Abraham does. And that started with him going to the land of Canaan. And then you get to Genesis 12 and you see God promises that Abraham will be a blessing to the nations. And he promises that Abraham will have so many descendants. But what's the problem? Abraham was already 75 years old. Sarah was 65 years old and they didn't have any children yet. Sarah was completely barren. So then about 10 years passes Abraham's now 85, Sarah's now 75, and they still have no children. So you go on in the Genesis account, you get to Genesis 16, and you see that the son that God promised to them still hasn't arrived. They're getting impatient. So Abraham and Sarah take God's plans into their own hands. And this is what you read in Genesis 16. Just listen, I'll I'll rehearse some of these verses so you can remember the story here. So Genesis 16 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So this was perfectly legal in that culture. 
Um, this was a perfectly legitimate thing to do in that culture, but this was not what God wanted. So you go on in Genesis 16 a little later, and you read that says, And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Okay, so 86. Fast forward now another 13 years, and then you get to Genesis 17. Listen to a little bit of what happens in 17 and 18. It says this, When Abram, 13 years later, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And then goes on and see Abram saying to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then you finally get to Genesis chapter 21 when God makes good on his promise to Abraham and Sarah. And this is what you read in the beginning of Genesis 21. It says this, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. All right, so you're following along so far. A lot of history here. Abraham, two sons, Isaac, Ishmael. Ishmael was born by the slave woman, Hagar. And Isaac was born by the free woman, Sarah. And then Paul keeps going with this illustration. He's dragging this. In verse 23, he says, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Ishmael. The son of Hagar, the slave, was born according to the flesh, meaning that he was born by natural human processes, and and his birth was the idea of human reasoning, of human scheming, of human plotting, of human effort. Isaac, on the other hand, was born by Sarah, a free woman, and his birth was one of supernatural origin. It came as a result of God's promise. It was miraculous. So Paul uses the facts of these historical accounts from Genesis to illustrate the spiritual reality that true freedom comes as a result of God's gracious promises. It doesn't come as a result of any kind of human effort, work, merit, ingenuity, none of that. And he goes on in verse 24. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So again, Paul's adding to this illustration here. He tells that the uh, two women, Hagar and Sarah, each represent two covenants. One covenant from Mount Sinai. This is the covenant of the law. And when it's taken to be more than what God intended it to be, all that covenant does is put people under bondage. After all, Hagar was a slave, and in that context in that society, the uh, status of the children was that of the status of the mother. So that means um, Ishmael was a slave and all who are children of Hagar, um, if you follow this illustration through, are also slaves. But the other covenant here in that verse that Paul infers is the covenant of promise with Abraham. See, Sarah is the one who represents that gracious covenant, that gracious promise. She was a free woman, which means all of her children, all of her descendants, all of her spiritual descendants are free children. And it was this 
covenant of promise that looked forward to a new and better covenant, one that Jesus eventually ushered in. Now we get to Galatians 4, verses 25 and 26. Paul just keeps adding to this allegory. He says, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Okay, so not only do the women and their children represent two covenants, but now we also see they represent two Jerusalems. Hagar. Hagar represents the old covenant of legalism and law given at Mount Sinai. And remember, that law was at the very center of everything that the Jews in Jerusalem were enslaved to, everything they were in bondage to. So Paul compared Hagar and the covenant of the law with Jerusalem in his own day. Right? They were uh, politically enslaved to Rome, and Jerusalem in that day, all the Jews were religiously enslaved to their strict pursuit of legalism. But on the other hand, Sarah represents the freedom of the Jerusalem above. See, in, in contrast to the old covenant based on law, the new covenant based on God's promises, the one that is entirely free to you, the one that is entirely free to me, this covenant brings about a heavenly citizenship where all of God's children through faith in Christ have their citizenship and will ultimately one day dwell in perfection. And then Paul goes on and he quotes a joyous hymn from the prophet Isaiah, showing that God's plan all along was to bring great blessing and privilege to unfruitful Israel. He says this in verse 27. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. See, Sarah, the one who, who had been barren, was the one that was blessed with Isaac. And the point being that the birth of Isaac was a result of a free and gracious promise. It was a result of waiting on and trusting in God and allowing him to do what they could not do for themselves. His birth wasn't the result of any kind of human work, any kind of human plotting or scheming whatsoever. God promised Isaac would be born and he delivered on that promise out of the abundance of his grace. And it's this exact point that Paul wants the believers to really grasp, which is why he makes it so clear in verse 28. He goes on to say, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. This is a powerful statement. With just these few short words, Paul delivers a reminder to the believers in Galatia for them to really be remembering and thinking about who they truly are. Don't forget your true identity. Just as the physical birth of Isaac was a miracle born out of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah, the privilege of our spiritual rebirth is a miracle that springs from the gracious promises of God. And that's completely a work of the Spirit. See, whereas Ishmael represents the, the Judaizers and, and the legalists and all those who live in slavery to the law, Isaac, in this analogy, represents the true Christ followers, those who live by faith in God's promises. So if believers are like Isaac, Paul wants us to know that some of our experiences will be like some of Isaac's experiences, including persecution. And this is the point that he makes in the next verse, in Galatians 4.29, he says this, But just as at that time 
He who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. So again, Paul's continuing to draw another contrast from their lives. He's, he's referring to an incident in Genesis where as they got a little older, Ishmael, the one who was born according to the flesh, began persecuting Isaac, the one who was born according to the promise. Right? And that same persecution, Paul says, was, was playing out in his own day from those, as those who were under the law, the Judaizers, continued to persecute those who were free from the law, like Paul and the Galatians. So what were the Christians in Galatia to do with these Judaizers, these persecuting legalists? Well, Paul quotes from Genesis 21 and tells them what to do. Verses 30. He says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Paul is making it clear here that Judaism and Christianity could not coexist as paths to the same goal any more than Ishmael and Isaac could share in Abraham's inheritance. That's just not how it worked. Isaac was the promised one. He was the one who was to become the recipient of everything that belonged to Abraham, not Ishmael. Ishmael was cast out. He was the one that was told to flee from their myths. And so, and so Paul makes the point that, that he hasn't already made here. For the first time, he's telling the Galatians, all right, it's time for you guys to get rid of these Judaizers in your, myth, in your midst. Get them out. They're preaching a false gospel. Expel them. And then with one final point, To bring his argument full circle, Paul reminded himself, he reminded the Galatians, and he reminds us that we are children of freedom, not children of slavery. That's what he says in verse 31. He says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. See, because God called us, because God gave us the faith that we needed to even receive his gracious gift of salvation, we are children of freedom, children of promise. I guess what we could answer Paul's question and say that Sarah is our mommy. And then Paul kind of wraps this up uh, with the first verse of chapter 5, and that's the kind of the verse that he'll spring into the whole practical section. And this is what he says. He says, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So there you have that passage. Two women who gave birth to two sons by two very, very different means. Hagar, the slave woman, gave birth to the slave son, Ishmael. Ishmael stands as the representative of human effort, Apart from God, he stands and represents flesh and self-determination, self-reliance and law. And apart from God, like Ishmael, we all share his same status, that of slaves. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to the law. We deserve nothing other than being cast out from God's presence. But thanks be to God that he made good on his promise to give Sarah, the free woman, a miraculous son of promise. See, whereas Ishmael stands as the representative of human effort apart from God, Isaac stands as the representative of a divine promise apart from works, apart from anything we can do. Because through Isaac came the promise of Jesus who did for us what we can never do for ourselves. He redeemed us from slavery. 
Jesus gave us new life. He made us his sons and his daughters, and that changes everything about us. Everything about us is entirely different. We just don't always remember. I'm sure most of you have seen the movie The Lion King. You have Simba, the young lion. He runs away after his father, the Lion King, is killed. And Simba runs from his past because he thinks that he's the one ultimately responsible for his father's death. But he's also running from the future because he's the one who's supposed to become the king of the beasts. And that, that, that frightens him. So Simba in the movie takes refuge with Timon and Pumbaa. And we see that the king of beasts is living his life simply eating bugs. That's what his life has been reduced to. But then if you remember that one scene where it shows Simba looking in, in a deep puddle of water, he sees his own reflection, and then he looks away and he glances again, and then he sees the reflection of his father. And then his father's image then, then appears to him uh, in the sky, and then we hear that unmistakable voice of James Earl Jones saying to Simba, Remember who you are. That's, that sounded like his Darth Vader voice, I don't know. But you remember that. Remember what he said. Remember who you are. See, Simba had forgotten who he was. He wasn't a bug eater. He was the son of a king. Well, church, that's the same reminder that God has for you this morning. Remember who you are. Remember that you did not come to God based on your work, based on your effort, based on your merit, based on your wisdom, based on your intellect, based on anything good in you at all whatsoever. God came to you. God came to me. It was all of him. He called you. He offered you his salvation. And when you received it by faith and when you trusted in Christ, you had a complete change of identity. You went from spiritual death to spiritual life. You went from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You were given the very life of Jesus himself. You're no longer called a sinner. You're no longer called a slave. God no longer calls you his enemy. God fundamentally, fundamentally changed you to a saint. He changed you and released you from the bondage that you were in, and he calls you his son and his daughter. Amen. See, as a result of that, everything about you has changed. Everything important about you, everything lasting about you, everything eternal about you has fundamentally changed. You might look the same. You might dress the same. And this is the part we struggle with. You might even feel the same. But make no mistake, you are not the same. Because what God says about you is true. And what he says is the voice that we need to listen to. We have a radically new identity as a child of God. Not because of our performance, but because we've been reborn by the Spirit of God. So let's stop living as, as defeated, bug-eating creatures and remember that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Amen? Amen. Remember who you are. Now, there are at least two specific things that the passage says about who you are. So let, we'll go through these quick. Here's the first one. I am a child of promise born by the power of the Spirit. 
I am a child of promise born by the power of the Spirit. See, this is what Paul just got finished saying, right? In in verse 28, he says, Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. And then verse 29 clues us in on the fact that Isaac, as a child of promise, was born not by plotting and scheming of humans, but was born by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God, out of the grace of his own character, out of the goodness of who he is, he made a promise to the old and childless Abraham that he would have a son. God promised that through this son, he would bring blessings to all nations, and God came through on his promise. By the miraculous work of the Spirit, he brought forth the promised Isaac from Sarah's ancient womb. And then God maintained the promised line of Isaac for 2,000 years through the Old Testament, all through Israel's history, all through Israel's people. And then by another miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in an obscure village called Bethlehem, God brought forth the promised Messiah from Mary's virgin womb. And the Messiah, the one that is called Jesus of Nazareth, was actually God in the flesh. And he lived the perfect sinless life that none of us were able to live so that in his death on the cross, the penalty for our sins would be completely paid in full. Then three days later, just outside the city walls of Jerusalem and by another miraculous work of his powerful spirit, God brought forth his victorious and risen son from that empty tomb, just as he promised. And for the last 2,000 years, by the miraculous work of his powerful spirit, God has been blessing the nations by gathering to himself a huge family of redeemed children, just as he promised to Sarah and Abraham 4,000 years ago. By faith in the Lord Jesus, you are a child of promise born of the power of of the Spirit. You're like Isaac. You're a product of grace. You're a new creation brought about by divine promise. You're a much-loved child. I could say that all I want. Do you believe it? If you're a follower of Christ, do you believe that? You should. Right? Because it's what God says about you. And what God says is ultimate truth. It's kind of hard to find truth in our world, isn't it? It's not when we go right to the source of truth himself. We better believe what he says about himself. We better believe what he says about us. So if he says that you're a child of promise, if he says that you've been reborn by the power of the Spirit, then guess what? You're a child of promise who's been reborn by the power of the Spirit, like Isaac. Guess what else that means? It means that every time that you view yourself as unwanted, or every time that you see yourself as unlovable, you're simply believing a lie that you're Ishmael. You're forgetting that God calls you Isaac. Remember who you are. See, it means those times when you truly think that your mishaps or your mistakes are somehow going to cause God to love you less, you're believing a lie. You can't make God stop loving you. You can't make him love you less. It also means you can't make him love you more if you think you can do a lot of good things to somehow gain continued favor with him. He ain't going to love you more. 
That means we're still relating to God based on our, our own human-based ideas of acceptance and performance. God loves you. You are loved. You are accepted. We are children of promise born by the power of the Spirit. That should energize us. That should encourage us. I mean, think about Isaac as he got a little older. He must have been amazed at hearing the story of his miraculous birth, and he must have felt so worthwhile to be that son of promise. Well, the same is true of us. We should feel the same way. I am a child of promise born by the power of the Spirit. Do you believe that? Then say it out loud with me with conviction. Say this, I am a child of promise born by the power of the Spirit. Amen. And then there's a second truth about our new identity that we should know from this passage as Christ followers, and that's this. I am a citizen of heaven granted the privilege of true freedom. I am a citizen of heaven granted the privilege of true freedom. See, just as you become a citizen of a country by, uh, on earth by means of your physical birth, so it's your spiritual birth that makes you a citizen of heaven. The way Paul put it in this passage was that we belong to the, to the free and heavenly Jerusalem that is above, meaning the world, this world, is no longer our home. Heaven's our home. We're tourists. We're passing through. We're just trying to tell as many, peop as many people about this awesome kingdom and this great king until we get there. We're subjects of the king of heaven then also. We belong entirely to God. Body, soul, spirit, every part of us. As citizens of heaven, we're part of a new spiritual family with new priorities in life. And as citizens of heaven, we've been granted the privilege of true freedom. See, we, are, we, like, we love America. We love our country because it is one of the most free countries in the world. But American freedom is nothing compared to this kind of freedom. And this is the true freedom that Scripture talks about. You are free in Christ. See, before you received Christ, you were a slave to sin. You were a citizen of darkness. But because of Christ's work on the cross, sin's power over you. And, and the law's demands of you have been broken and your citizenship has been transferred. Satan no longer has ownership of you. He's got no authority over you. He's been defeated. Guess what? He knows that. You know what? He doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to remember who you are. He's going to try to keep you from the truth of what God says about you. He wants to keep you from remembering that you belong to God. You are his. Satan wants you to think you're still a slave. He wants you to think you're an Ishmael, but you are free. You are an Isaac. You are a son and a daughter of the Most High God. So make the decision to believe the truth of what God says about you. When God says that you're free... You better believe that you're free. You're free from the penalty and power of sin. You're free from condemnation. You're free from the chains of the past. You're free from Satan's lies and all of his accusations and all of his deceptions. And because you are free from all of those things, that means you are now free to do so many things. You are free to love others selflessly. You are free to serve God passionately. You're free to believe all of the beautiful truths about who you are in Christ. So when you're feeling too weak, 
to resist sin, remember that you're free from sin's controlling power. When you feel inadequate, when you feel lacking, remember that you lack nothing. You are complete in Christ. When you think that no one loves you, remember that you're fully accepted by the Father. When you find yourself feeling guilty all the time, remember that the one who makes the rules says you are completely forgiven entirely. And when you think your problems are are too trivial for God, remember that you have access to approach him with boldness and in confidence as his son and as his daughter. And when you feel powerless, when you feel exhausted, remember that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He fills you, he empowers you, he comforts you, he guides you, he sustains you. In Christ, brothers and sisters, in Christ you are completely accepted. In Christ you are totally secure. In Christ you are deeply significant. So guess what? When you wake up on those mornings, when you're feeling low, remember who you are. Remember what God says about you. When the pain of your past and when the pressures from the present seem to converge and and drown out the voice of truth, remember what God says about you. If you find yourself in a season of having your focus pulled away from the gospel and onto the distractions of the world and the lies of Satan, remember who you are. I am a child of promise, born by the power of the Spirit. I am a citizen of heaven, granted the privilege of true freedom. Will you repeat those two with me? Say this, I am a child of promise, born by the power of the Spirit. And say it with conviction. I am a child of promise, born by the power of the Spirit. And let's do this second one. I am a citizen of heaven, granted the privilege of true freedom. Church, do you believe that? Amen. Would you stand as I close us in prayer and as we sing about that freedom that is ours in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth of who we are. And Lord, we're sorry for so, so often making the choice to listen to every other voice but yours. Lord, so help us Help us to realize all that is ours in Christ. Lord, we need uh, the Spirit's help to to access the the, the truths and riches of all of our blessings in the gospel, everything that you changed about us, Lord. Because the truth is, when you called us and gave us the faith to respond to you, Lord, you didn't just punch a ticket to heaven and say, see you when you get there. Lord, you changed us so so fundamentally, you've made so many things new, better, beautiful about us, Lord, not because of us, but because of you. You gave us the life of Christ himself, and you fill us with your spirit. God, I pray that we would go this week walking in the confidence and in the truth of who we are in Christ. Lord, help us to hear your voice above every other voice that will be screaming for our attention this week. Lord, help us to seek you. Help us to know you more, to fall more deeply in love with you. And Lord, may we see ourselves the way you see us. 
thank you that we are forever free from guilt and condemnation. And thank you, Lord, that we stand in the position of true freedom from which we can love you in return and serve you and show the world just how great and awesome of a God that you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.